Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Neil Ellison. In the year 2000, Capital One had never executed a sustained advertising campaign and had what is known in the business as a fuzzy brand image. It was lost in the mire of hidden pricing, excessive fees, and endless direct mail come-ons. But then the word went forth. What's in your wallet? After one year of advertising, Capital One's total brand awareness reached 90% and total U.S. accounts reached 40 million. Ten years later, in 2011, it was reported that Madison Avenue had voted on the most iconic slogans in history. At the top of the list of 16 was Capital One's What's in Your Wallet? As we all know, it's still on TV today. If you haven't figured out the title of the sermon today, as weird as it is, is what's in your wallet? Now, stay with me. I'll make sense of this. Yes. CNBC reports that what's in your wallet can reveal about your finances and say, if, it's, if you're carrying around a tattered old wallet filled with crumpled receipts, credit cards, reward cards, spare keys, and whatever else you can fit in it, you shouldn't be surprised if you're having some trouble getting a handle on your finances. The way you treat your wallet and the money in your wallet sends a direct message about what you're saying about yourself, says New York-based financial advertiser uh, Stacy Francis, um, a nonprofit financial education organization that she runs by the name of Savvy Ladies. Savvy Ladies. If you pay more attention to your money and the way it's organized, you'll be more organized, more responsible, and more on top of your finances. The question is, what's in your wallet? That's become a metaphor for who you are. You can go online and find a list of 77 items a person might carry in their wallet. I scored eight out of 77. Now I'm going into some dangerous territory here. One website was entitled, What's Inside Your Purse Says About You. What's in your bag, ladies? Sunglasses, phone, uh, phone, phone charger, gum, water bottle, lip balm, assorted candy wrappers, rings you forgot you own, entirely too many receipts, basically everything but the kitchen sink. What does that say about you? You always feel a little behind on your to-do list, but hey, it makes sense considering how many different responsibilities you take on each week both at work and socially. You have a deep sense of responsibility to make others around you happy, and your empathy for people and animals no bounds. You have a hard time listening to music. Hey, you just like what you like. But you absolutely love uh, trying new foods. You would wear more jewelry, but it always seems to get lost at the bottom of your purse. So why bother it in the first place? Imagine that. You can learn all that from just looking in your purse. Where I'm going with all this is to 
ask a more serious question. How do you see yourself? How do you understand who you are? What defines, really defines who you are? Mark Twain once said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you found you find out why. Why were you born? What is your meaning and purpose in life? Is life only about collecting a bunch of stuff and a list of experiences and then you die? Is that all there is to life? But who are you really? Who and what really defines who you are? We've been going through a, the book of Re, uh, Revelations, um, our sermon series, uh, but it, it's one of the most intense books that re reveals not only God, who God is and his plan of salvation, but also who we are. Augustine, who considered the book to be the most basic, most comprehensive statement of true Christ Christianity, and Martin Luther, who described the book of Romans as the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. In Romans 1, Paul tells us about uh, who we are and that we are an unrighteous people who suppress the truth with unrighteousness. And he says in chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What a terrible indictment that is, a terrible reality. That's how, that's how scripture describes us as a people. Last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mark spoke and uh, I think did a great job because what's hard about the book of Romans is it talks about God's plan of salvation, but it talks about the fact that some are saved and some are not. In our world today, the idea goes around that, oh, God loves everybody. Everybody will be saved. But that's not true. God has made choices and we have made choices in life. Not all of us are saved. And as Paul presents and goes through the scripture, he come, we come to chapter nine. In chapter eight, Paul talks about how God loves us and he has a plan for us and he has in fact even chosen us before the foundation of the world. He has that plan for us and our lives. And even in the midst of adversity and problems and, and, and all the struggles that we face, God even there is working to our good. That's the basis of the background and the picture of God's love. But as we get into chapter nine, which I'm going to kind of begin to address here today, Paul really comes out and grieves for the people of Israel. Uh, this whole section here talks about the issue of predestination and God's choice and what part he has in that and who we are in all that. 
and Steve has kind of indicated that he would like to be able to speak on that subject. So I'm going to really reserve that to him. But what I'm going to look at today out of the book of, uh, out of chapter 9 of Romans here, where it starts out that Paul says that he grieves not for hardship that lies ahead, but for the lost souls of Israel. He starts out by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and great unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israel. They are the Israelites. What he means by this emphasis is that here Israel are the people of God. They're called out by God. They've been delivered from slavery, brought out of Egypt by God, and to them belong the adoption into the family of God. They are brought in to him in a special relationship. God has said, I will be their God and they will be my people. Mark's statement beginning of the service was the celebration of Israel. Arise, shine, for we are the people of God. God has called us to himself. Israel is also partakers of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. The people of Israel actually saw God's manifestation of himself. They saw him on Mount Sinai. They saw him in the fire as they uh, were led out of Egypt. They saw when God descended down on the mountain. They saw God's presence in the holy temple. The nation of Israel are also special because they have the covenants of God that were given to them and to their heritage and to their people. There's the covenant of Adam, the covenant of Adam that says that God will in fact destroy Satan and overturn all that has occurred and all the loss that has happened in the Garden of Eden. There's the covenant with Noah where God promises to Noah and, and the, the remnant of people that there will never be a time on the earth when the earth will be destroyed again by flood. They're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they receive the blessing of all the covenants that God has made with them. They're very special because they were been given the law under Moses. They have been given God's personal special word of how to live and how to receive his goodness and how to experience their relationship with him. They have been able to worship him. The tabernacle in the wilderness and the series of sacrifices and offerings, they have had that relationship with him where they can praise and celebrate their relationship with him. And of course, they have received the promise 
that they will be a mighty nation with people who number the sands of the sea. To them beyond uh, belong the patriarchs. Their heritage is Abraham, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, they have received the promise and the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. So Paul is reflecting here that they have been given everything. They have it all. They have all these blessings, all these experiences, all these occasions, and yet even then he grieves because he knows that some of his people in the end will not be saved. They have had everything, but have lived under the law. And that's part of the problem. For those people to live under the law meant that this defined who they were. This, for them, spoke about who they were and and the special people that they were. But for them, their understanding of the law was this was something that they were to fulfill. This was something that they were not just to do, but that this determined their relationship with God. And they took great pride in that because their goal in life, their purpose in life, was to fulfill the law. And that was it. And they felt that they succeeded in that. We see an interesting account, of course, uh, in um, the story of the rich man who prayed, I am glad that I am not like this other man. Luke tells us in chapter 18, he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What he's saying is, I keep the law. I do everything right. The implication is even, God, you owe me because I do all these things. Steve Keller, uh, in his sermon before, told the story of the rich young ruler that Jesus asked him, who asked, Jesus asked to give up his wealth. Said, sell all, Jesus said, sell all that you have and follow me. Not an issue of security, but to give up his identity, his sense of who he was. He had to give up and follow Jesus. He had everything. He had the wealth. He had the prosperity. He had the reputation. He had the acceptance of the people. He had his position and his station in life. But Jesus said, I want you to give all that up. And follow me. The hard thing sometimes to realize that 
is that being born again just doesn't mean to be born into a new spiritual life. It may also mean giving up your identity and everything that you have and everything that you own. You're being born again into a new identity, a new relationship, a new purpose in life, and a new relationship with God. Israel itself, of course, was delivered from slavery, and they were reborn into the family of God. God said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they also made the mistake of thinking we want to be in control. Israel, at one point, even wanted to return to Egypt, return to slavery, because as bad as it was, it was predictable. They were still in charge of their own destiny. They could live with slavery because they knew uh, that all they had to do was to comply with the demands of their slave masters, and they would have food. They would be provided for. It was predictable. In the wilderness, God was unknown to them. The idea of a personal God that they had to trust in, to trust in him to be in control, to trust that he would provide for them, that they could trust him for their future, that they could trust in his word and his promise. Moses saw this not as trusting his uh, leadership, but God says specifically, he said, all this is happening not because of you, but because they don't trust in me. Sometimes when we live under the law, we want to be in control. We want to do things our way. We want to be in charge. Perhaps many of us can say we've been there. But where does your identity come from? Where does your sense of worth come from? Where does your security come from? Where does your hope for the future come from? By faith, faith in Christ, that he can and he will. I once thought of myself as a Christian husband, a Christian father, a Christian attorney, a Christian counselor, a Christian educator, a Christian elder in a church, and then a Christian pastor. But I failed to understand what those titles really meant. What I was doing was I was merely adding on the tag of Christian to these other titles that define my identity. What I had to do was to be able to discard all that and to be able to say to myself and to others, I'm a Christian who happens to be, I happen to be a father. I happen to be a husband. I happen to be all these other things. But first and foremost, above everything else, I am a Christian in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is my identity. He is my everything. And everything in that relationship defines who I really am. 
the most, perhaps the most popular parable in all of Scripture is the parable of the prodigal son. It talks about a new identity, forgiveness by the Father, a call into a new relationship, not based on position or status or the law. Understand that as Jesus was telling this parable, he was talking to two groups of people. He was talking on the one hand to sinners and tax collectors, people hated and rejected in the world and in society. And on the other hand, he was talking to the scribes and Pharisees, the people who were the leaders, the people who were under the law, the people who were doing it right, the people who had everything together and had everything they thought. But he spoke not just to one, but he spoke to both these groups. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the uh, pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this was my son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Stop and picture for a minute when he gets to this point in the narrative. I can just imagine the reaction of the people he's speaking to. The sinners and the tax collectors, they're going, oh, preach it, brother, giving each other high fives. That was a great story. Oh, I love this story. The story of forgiveness, the story of acceptance, the story of restoration in spite of all that he had done. And yet he was accepted by the Father. For they, in their life, they had been rejected so many times and so often and turned away from in their life. Here was a story that Jesus was telling about forgiveness and restoration. But can't you imagine at this point the scribes and the Pharisees sitting over in the 
corners scowling and angry and looking at each other. And what is he saying? What does he mean to say that? Why in the world did this happen? What is he talking about here? That makes no sense. For them, they held all the cards in their wallet. They had everything. They had kept the law. The son did not deserve the father's love and compassion. The son had broken the law. He had abandoned the father, left the family, and gone out on his own. He deserved under the law to be punished. That was what his outcome should be. We see this then that Christ adds another part of the story beyond this, where he says, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, and the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In spite of the fact, if we come back to our picture and our introduction, he had no card in his wallet. He was penniless. He was bankrupt. He was given a birthright, not under the law, but by grace through faith. Paul, at the end of the chapter, talks about understanding this problem of those whom he loved that would not be given salvation. And he speaks in terms of them dealing with a stumbling block. He said for them, they were under the law. They had everything. They did everything, or at least tried to do everything that they thought entitled them to so much more. How is it then that they are to receive and others receive salvation who didn't earn it? See, Paul was talking to a people in the church in Rome at the time. These were Jews, but they're also Gentiles. And what he was saying was, is that here, yes, you have followed Judaism, you have followed the law here, but it's not as a matter of heritage, it's not as a matter of uh, doing, you know, keeping the law, fulfilling everything, but it is by God's grace and mercy and 
that is open not only to you by God's choice, but also to those before who were not God's people. This salvation, this special relationship, this future, this promise is available for all who by faith, according to his promise, would come to him. He said, quotes this, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. We as Christians know that was Jesus Christ, of course. But we don't often look to say, why was it a stumbling block? Because for some, for the nation of Israel, they had lived under the law, they had gone through all these rules, they had kept all these rituals, and for them it was just doing and doing and not being or not being in their relationship with God and not trusting God and the work of God for them on their behalf by faith through Christ. For God's plan was not that people would be saved under the law, but from the law. It's hard to understand. The thing of it is, is when we become a Christian, does that mean that we just no longer have to pay any attention to the law? No, because the law is given to us because we know that it is God's way of life. It's the way that we find when we follow and seek after God and follow his commands and his directions. That's what makes life work. But it is, first of all, recognizing by faith that Jesus Christ has saved us, not because we fulfill the law, but he is the one who is righteous. And he has imputed that to us. He has given that to us. He's taken care of the requirements of the law. But because we follow Christ, believe in him, and have faith in him, what we do is we then, out of love for him and understanding his law, we seek to embrace it and live it and walk it out in our life because it works. Let me give me a little latitude here for a second as I close. Essentially, if we stop and look at it, let me give you this context here for what we've talked about. There are virtually two cards for your wallet. One is a works card. It says, if I do good, uh, the good I do counts towards my salvation. I once heard a politician say, um, he said, I have done so many good things for people that when I get to heaven, there's no way God can deny my entrance into heaven. I want to go, ooh. That's scary. But sometimes people think that way. If I just do enough good things, if I give enough money, if, you know, then, I mean, hey, I'm a shoe-in. Who wouldn't love a person like that? Wouldn't God love me? 
the former mayor of New York City himself, Mario, uh, Mario Como, said that he wanted to have put on his tombstone when he died these two words, I tried. Sometimes we look at our lives and say, well, if I stand before heaven and, and uh, you know, the, the thing you know, that uh, evangelism explosion used to ask you two questions. One is, do you know for certain you're going to heaven? And if you do, why would God let you into heaven? The question is asked by St. Peter, why should we let you into heaven? For many people, it's, well, I tried. I tried. Isn't that enough? The card of works. For some, my church attendance and tithing counts, or my parents were Christians. Israel thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, and then they were a shoe in because they were the children of God by the fact that they were born of the patriarchs. I uh, did a uh, funeral service one time uh, for uh, a couple of brothers who had a father that they didn't really like very well. And uh, so anyway, what happened was is that uh, the funeral homes in our area, oftentimes, because there were many of them, and uh, we were a large church, they would have many families that would come in that had no church affiliation, and so they would ask for a pastor or somebody to do a funeral, and they'd call on us to come and do the funerals. So uh, kind of it was kind of scary because you never knew who you were going to end up with. But uh, I went through this one, agreed to do this for the family. It was like the day before the service. And uh, they, I talked with the uh, uh, two brothers, and they said, well, our father really wasn't a very good person. He really wasn't a believer or anything like this. I said, okay, so help me out here. Why do you want a Christian funeral by a Presbyterian pastor? And their response was, well... His mother was a Sunday school teacher in a Presbyterian church, and we kind of thought it would be nice to have a Presbyterian pastor do the service. Uh, <clears throat> if you're wondering, yes, I did the service, but uh, it's interesting when you face those circumstances. But the point is, is that because we are raised by Christian parents or we have that, that relationship that doesn't mean that we're automatically giving, given uh, a pass to go into heaven or to be accepted by God. The other myth that we have sometimes under works is the good I do cancels out the bad I do. Yes, I defrauded people. Uh, I did many things that hurt many people in life, that, uh, but... Um, the thing of it is, is, but I did volunteer, and I gave a lot of money. I did a lot of good things. I, I don't, this is not fair as an indictment. I'm, I'm not casting against all of them, but sometimes we see people in the entertainment business who um, themselves, they give tons and tons of money, and, and you know, they're, held up as such good people and then you look at their lives and you think oh you know what a you know how in the world those two things don't 
match. How in the world do they live like this on the one hand, and then they're lifted up as being examples of such great people? Another thing on the card uh, <clears throat> says, I need to do good things to earn God's grace and forgiveness. The only way I can be sure that God forgives me is if I do a lot of good things, if I do the right things, then God's going to have to forgive me. But you know, the word grace, you know what it means? The word grace means unmerited favor. <clears throat> so how is the good things that I'm trying to do here going to somehow merit God's grace and forgiveness? By definition, those two things don't go together, do they? The card of works. Finally, doing good deeds will prevent me facing suffering, disappointment, and hardship. That's what my card of good works says. But it's not accurate, is it? Mark told us all about that before. How, yes, even as believers and Christians, there are difficult times, there are hardships, there's loss, there's pain, and there's suffering. But in all of that, God works, even in the hardships and whatever we experience, God works to bring us through them and to mold us and conform us into his image. The card of works. But the other card is the card of faith. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. That's the top line on that card. Because everything comes out of that. God's work of grace and calling me to himself giving me, by the work of his spirit, the faith to believe in him, to trust in him, to enter into a relationship with him, to count on him alone for my redemption, my forgiveness, my future, and my hope. Number two, my identity, of course, is in Christ alone. As I said before, because I am a new creature. I am a new creature in Christ through grace by faith. The third thing is God is in control of all things. There are no surprises to God. So whatever happens to me, whatever my future holds, whatever God takes me, whatever experience he's leading me through, whatever things that he is taking me to or to learn from or to grow from, anything that happens in the future to me is no surprise by God because he's in control of all things. And finally, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Mark's statement, final statement in his sermon. Those are all the things that appear on the card of faith. So, there are two cards. 
One is the the works card and one is the faith card. Which card is for you? So let me ask you one more time. What's in your wallet? Let us pray. Gracious Lord, Lord, may we always hang on to that faith card. May that be the only thing in our wallet. May it be the only thing that defines us. May it be the only thing that that just guides us and directs us. Lord, may we walk with you in faith, in your spirit, and in your life. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.